the evacuation announced. Our text for this week is Exodus 4, verses 1 through 17. That's what will be preached on by uh, each campus teaching pastor. And the total background that we're going to worry about as life group leaders is the entirety of Exodus chapter 4. We're going to see how the Lord equips Moses for the mission. You are listening to the Brentwood Baptist Church Life Group Leader Podcast, a resource to equip and encourage group leaders on their journey toward being disciples and making disciples through life groups. Well, hey, I'm glad you're here at the Brentwood Baptist Life Group Leader Podcast. I'm Paul Wilkinson. The I'm going I'm to get my title right eventually. It's something very close to Adult Groups Minister Dash Associate. Uh, either way, I handle the adult groups primarily on campus at the Brentwood campus. Uh, deal with leader training, leader development, uh, helping partner with and equipping life group leaders to be disciples of Jesus and make disciples with Jesus out of the people in their life groups. So uh, this is what I love to do. And a big part of that is that we teach the gospel well week after week after week, that we keep the gospel in front of our people's eyes, that we're creating environments and contexts in our groups that are saturated in gospel, because that's going to increase the sensitivity to the Holy Spirit as people come to discern their callings, as people come to discern whether they ought to be going to new campus launches, mission journeys, long-term missionaries overseas or domestically. Uh, how we spin out smaller groups out of our larger life groups for increased in- intimacy and transparency, where we can actually, as James would say, five, uh, confess sin to one another and seek real true restoration. So remember, Jesus had the thousands he ministered to. That's our Sunday morning or Tuesday night for Kairos services. Jesus had his 70, which that he sent out to, uh, to do the mission, to share the coming of the kingdom with people, to prepare the way for Jesus to then come behind and teach. I think that's really how our life groups function, is that that 70 capacity, what's often called social space context, doesn't mean socializing. It means that we gather around affinity, that we do ministry uh, for one another in there. We do community service with each other out of the life group, and that we are gathered together, anchored in the scriptures and the unpacking of the scriptures together. So we pray and teach. That's really what we do in the life groups. We pray and teach and serve together. So we do ministry in-house as we care for those in need in our groups, and we do ministry to the community, whether it's partnering with a local elementary school, Grace Works, Reboot. I know West Franklin does a lot with the police departments there, and each of you um, has your own ministries at, the, at your local campus, and it's really exciting to see us do kingdom work together in that way, all reflective of God's glory, all reflective of Christ and his sacrifice. What we're about here on this podcast is how are we leveraging the social space context that is our life groups for saturating the gospel in order to create the attitudes, these on-ramps, and the mentality to get after the work of the kingdom, to want to be in a group where you can be trained and equipped specifically to do ministry to Muslims or to do ministry to naturalistic atheists. And you want to get into a Peter, James, and John, and Jesus type group 
where you can be open and vulnerable and confess your sin, where we start inviting people into our homes. The life groups are the hub by which we create the saturated gospel environments to produce all of that and for all of the other ministries of the church. That's why it's not the most important, but it is the most strategic is that we produce all of the workers, whether they go volunteer in preschool ministry, greeters, parking lot, mission journeys, whatever, they're coming out of our life groups. So we have to be about the business of teaching the Bible. And that's what we're going to do today as we talk about Exodus 4. So let's set a little bit of the background. And we always got to be reminding our people of the background each week. Um, Quick summaries, quick paraphrases, but always to keep things in context. We don't, we have to... We have to perpetually train our people on how to read the Bible well. And if we dive in and just snatch a verse, okay, so so Sunday, for instance, and I'm not saying this is wrong from the pulpit, but it is wrong for us as Bible teachers in the in the life group context. And so their text was Exodus 3, 14 and 15, the burning bush, really the I am statement is what the sermons were about. That's right and good for a sermon. But we're not doing sermons in our life groups, even if you're doing the sermon series. So in our life groups, we have to constantly and perpetually train our people not to read a verse here and there, not to take things out of context, which means we have to constantly reestablish the context for them. And so we do that. So where were we over the last two weeks, last three weeks that we land today in Exodus 4? And here's how I would do it um, as I teach if I were to teach a group this week, which I don't have one uh, that I'm teaching, someone else is doing it for me. But if I were teaching it, here's what I would say. I would say, well, we saw that God preserved Moses. A big highlight of that in Exodus 2, um, Exodus, the ends of Exodus 1, beginnings of Exodus 2, was that the Hebrew midwives feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. They feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And in so doing, they helped save Moses' life. In God's sovereignty, in God's providence of no plan of his will be thwarted. He preserved Moses, even getting Moses adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, but having it such that Moses' biological mother could be the one that raised him, ages one through four or five, before Moses, before the Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. Moses grew up with a, likely a tremendous Egyptian education. He would have had the best of the best, uh, being the adopted son of one of Pharaoh's daughters. And But he always understood himself as called, and he saw himself as an Israelite. And we had the evidence of that when he was walking and saw one of his Israelite brothers. And he uses that term brother, even though um, often it, it translates more generically, you know, one of my own people. But the term there, I think, is more strongly brother. He sees a brother being beaten by an Egyptian taskmaster, and Moses ends up murdering the guy. I don't think Moses feared God in that moment. So the midwives feared. Moses doesn't fear. He dives in and kills. I'm going to deliver. I'm going to do it my way. Visceral, reactionary, let's take action. Buries the guy in the sand. Comes back later the next day. And two Israelites are fighting. And Moses, what are you doing? I murdered an Egyptian yesterday uh, to save you. And now you're fighting amongst yourselves. And then they accuse Moses. Who are you? Who appointed you judge above us? So Moses saw himself as an Israelite, but nobody else did. They saw him as the Egyptian, as the one adopted as Pharaoh's daughter. And they said, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And then Moses realized that word had gotten around, um, burying him very shallowly in the sand presumably didn't help. 
Pharaoh gets wind of it, seeks Moses' life. Moses flees into the wilderness, dejected, defeated, the failed deliverer. Uh, he finds a wife there from the Midianite clan, and he becomes a shepherd. We're left at the end of chapter 2 with Moses dejected and defeated, having birthed a son. Should have been a great moment. His firstborn son, he names him Gershom. I am a foreigner here. Dejected, failed, not accepted by his own people. After we've set that context, understanding Moses is dejected as a foreigner, we're left at the very end of it all with God showing up. I hear my people. Deliverance is of God, and God's on the scene, and God's taking control. And then we get the revelation of God as personal, as powerful, as sovereign to Moses in chapter 3. I am who I am, or I am who I will be. And I call you, Moses, to deliver my people. And so here we show up on chapter 4. And Moses is rejecting the calling. So we're just going to take it in order as it's presented in chapter 4. So Moses at least three times pushes back against God having called him to the Israelites with three uh, fairly weak arguments and shows a lack of Moses' understanding. And again, underlying all of this is I'm assuming Moses wrote this. I'm assuming Mosaic authorship here. So Moses is writing this about himself, recording all of his failures and all of his faults. Uh, so he rejects at least three times. And so the first one is, it's not even about Pharaoh, right? God says, the people that wanted you dead are now dead themselves. So I'm going to send you back to deliver my people. And Moses says, and I think in the back of Moses' mind, he remembers they didn't accept me as an Israelite before. They They considered me an Egyptian even when I saved one of them from being beaten. And so Moses says, I'm going to go back there, and they're not going to accept me, Yahweh. I am, who just revealed yourself to me. They're not going to accept me back there. And God appeases Moses, and he says, they are going to accept you, and here's why. I'm going to allow through you great signs to be performed. And he gives him three of those signs. First, he tosses the rod down, it becomes a snake, snatches the snake back up, becomes a staff again. Uh, puts his hand in his cloak, comes out. The term there is leprous. It's really more just skin disease. I don't know if it's actual leprosy, but skin diseases were very horrifying in the ancient day. Uh, they, they didn't have the treatment to the extent that we had now. And you see, particularly in much of the Levitical law, people with these skin diseases are put outside of the camp. They're separated from the community for a season. And particularly in this area, in this region of the ancient Near East, uh, skin diseases were very much attached to the deities. Um, that would the deity heal them or not? And so for Moses just to stick his hand in his cloak, ah, disease, put it back in, ah, no more, is to show the radical sovereignty of God over this um, horrified and much feared skin disease. And then the last sign is that he's going to turn water into blood as he pours it out, which is a foreshadow, of course, of what he does with the Nile River. Uh, and Moses says, okay, he accepts that. But then he offers another reason why he doesn't want to do it. And he says, I'm, I'm not eloquent of speech. I'm slow in speech. I have always just taken that at face value to say that Moses maybe was a uh, stumbler when he spoke. He just, he wasn't very articulate. As I was reading a couple commentaries on this, they made the argument that it's not that, that this is a pattern that we see in a lot of biblical call stories. Think about Jeremiah's call story. And Jeremiah says, um, who am I, a youth? And we see Saul the same way. 
He says, I, I'm a lowly person. You're going to call me to be king when he was actually from a very prominent family uh, and tribe. So he actually was pretty well qualified. And then we you know Saul was the huge, well-built guy. Uh, we see David when he's called to the actual kingship part of him being king. He was already a war hero. He was already revered in all of Israel. And he's like, who am I that you call me? And we can see the same with a number of other prophets as well. And they say this is a, it's not a false humility, but it's sort of a, it's just sort of a ritual what you do. It's a pleasantry in many ways. There's just no evidence that he had any trouble speaking anywhere else in the text. And then we see him speaking all throughout the the rest of the Exodus and uh, sermons in Deuteronomy before the people go into the land. It just is never indicated that he ever actually has a speech impediment or anything like that. And so it's, a, it's an interesting approach. It's an interesting argument. And I, the reason I like it and the reason I'm starting to tend that way is because it's really about God and Moses there. What Moses is saying is, I know I can articulate what you're telling me to say, but I still don't trust that the Israelites. So it's the same problem as before. I still don't trust that anybody's going to be convinced by it. Because look at God's response. God's response wasn't, um, he doesn't send Aaron with him yet. His response is, I'm going to be with your mouth. It's not about you convincing anybody, Moses. I'm with your mouth. So trust that I am going to do the convincing that needs to be done. And I think that's really the contrast that Moses wants us to be thinking about here. And then, of course, the third uh, reluctance or third pushback against God is just an outright send somebody else. I don't want to do it. That's really that's really what he says. And that's when the Lord's anger burns against him. And yet the Lord sends him Aaron. And again, thinking about this theologically, thinking about the Moses-God dynamic here, uh, what's Moses really saying? Send somebody else. He's saying, A, I don't want to do it. So I think that what I want to do with my life is better than what you want me to do with my life, Lord. And then second, it may be a continued lack of trust that um, send somebody else because I don't think that this is actually going to work. I don't think it's going to actually be possible. And I think God's response, when I read it, what it says to me is, if you don't trust that I'm going to be with you in my sovereignty and power and all these signs, these three signs that I showed you, plus the burning bush that I've shown you, if you still don't trust my presence with you, even though you can't see me tangibly in the flesh, then I'll give you Aaron as a physical representation and manifestation of my presence with you. If it's going to take somebody else for you to get the job done, because Moses, you will get this job done, then so be it. And the Lord appeases and he gives them Aaron. So it's really stunning to see that when God calls us, it's not flippant. It's not an accident. It's not a, it would be nice if it is, it's going to get done. And whatever lengths I got to go to, and of course, God in his omniscience already knows what lengths he's going to have to go to to get it done. God does it. It's just truly incredible. And we have to share that promise with our people that God is not going to cease from calling you. Uh, there's a great poem called The Hound of Heaven, and it's, it's more about salvation proper, really, about being chased for salvation, but I think tangentially it could be used to understand calling too. And God, and maybe the Spirit of Christ more specifically, is imagined as a dog, and this dog just stays in constant pursuit until it catches you, and you're not going to get away from it. So your best bet is to submit to it. Because not only are you going to be exhausted trying to run, but in the submission, you're going to experience a wholeness and a fullness of life that just is available nowhere else. So the Hound of Heaven poem, maybe go snatch that up and 
Uh, see if you like it. I'll try to put a link to it in the show notes so you can quickly get there. Good, good stuff. You could go into depth on the meaning of the staff and track down other um, symbols of the staff in the Old Testament. The staff comes eventually to mean sort of God's throne is his representative. The staff is held up when the seas parted. Staff is held up in these different battles. The staff was crucial just culturally in this time, both as a weapon to protect yourself, both as a um, aid to walking, comfort, etc. And on and on it goes. I personally, while it's interesting and it may be worth mentioning, I don't know that there's a lot of gospel to be had out of it. You certainly could do it, but I personally wouldn't take a ton of time on it. Nevertheless, if, if, if you're into it and you're compelled that that's what your people need to hear this week, then do some research. Maybe go to BibleStudyTools.com, BibleStudyTools.com, and look up staff and see if there's, see if there's some stuff on that. Uh, it is. You can get a pretty thick article out of it um, on the uses of staff in the ancient Near East. There is a strange scene in many ways where Moses' wife circumcises Gershom. And it doesn't really seem to fit. Uh, I guess there's an allusion to it because we see the threat come or the foreshadow come of Pharaoh's son dying. And then now Moses' son is in danger. Um, it's, but it is a strange scene. So I think we need to deal with it as teachers because it can throw people off a little bit. And this language of blood relative, this language of God seeking to kill somebody is really strange. And so I'll say I'll say a number of things about it. And here's why I really like it is that the actual text there should probably read more like the angel of the Lord sought to kill Gershom. And it's not seeking to kill Moses. It's not punishing Moses. It's seeking to take out Gershom, the baby, the boy, uh, seeking to take out the boy. And if you remember back to our discussion of chapter 3, I made a theological argument. I don't think there's a textual argument to be made, but I do think there's a theological argument to be made that the person, the angel of the Lord, is could be understood and maybe should be understood as the second person of the Trinity, uh, the eternal Logos, uh, not incarnate, but as the second person spiritually. And there were a number of reasons for that. Some of the language, like when uh, the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar, I promise to make your child a descendant. The angel of the Lord is the one that comes out of the burning bush and just makes incredible claims that you wouldn't expect from a mere messenger. So I think there's a good argument to be had. And so if the angel of the Lord is the one that's popping up trying to kill Gershom, it's really stunning then to understand that in the context of Jesus. Is that Jesus, we often think of as love, forgiveness, and grace, and we forget about the wrath. We forget that Jesus, both in the Quran and certainly the New Testament, is going to be the one that returns to judge uh, in the end and, con- and condemn people. And Jesus says he came to bring the sword. We often point to when Peter cuts off the guy's ear in the night of Jesus' arrest, how Jesus restores the ear and says, put your swords away. But then we forget to go read after the resurrection what Jesus says, arm up, get your swords, because it's, it's, it's going down now and it's, it's serious now because they're coming to kill you now, not me. They hate me, so they're coming after you. So he tells them to arm up. Remember when he sends out the 70, don't arm up. Now at the end with the mandate, arm up. And so we forget that side of Jesus. He, he said radical things like, I came to separate, um, I came to break families because you have to decide whether you're going to follow me. And if the family doesn't follow, well, then you still need to choose me. 
And so it's um, it's not always as pleasant as we think it is. And so here that same being, that same person, I should use the language of person, I think, here, just to be Trinitarian, um, Trinitarian sound in what I'm saying. So that same person is the one showing up to kill Gerson. And what's incredible is that even though it's Gerson who's at the threat of murder sought to be killed, it's because of the failures of Moses. Moses is the one who ought to have circumcised him, and he didn't, or at least he didn't do it properly. And so, for instance, there was circumcision in other cultures as well, even in Egypt. But what Egypt had was a partial circumcision. And so one commentator suggests that maybe maybe it was the case that Moses' parents didn't circumcise him because they were afraid, because it was supposed to happen after the eighth day, right? And so maybe they were afraid that his crying would attract the guards who were looking for firstborn or looking for male Hebrews born. Uh, so there was any number of reasons why they would have chosen to refrain from it uh, out, out of certain fears of reprisal and retribution on the on behalf of the Egyptians. And so maybe it was the case that Moses was actually circumcised when he was adopted as Pharaoh's daughter. Uh and again, given over to Pharaoh, maybe they don't want to circumcise him the Hebrew way because they know he's going to be raised as an Egyptian. So any number of reasons. And now he possibly goes to Pharaoh's daughter and he gets circumcised as an Egyptian, which would have been a partial circumcision that was not uh, the uh, legitimate fulfilling of the Abrahamic covenant. And then maybe Moses did that same thing with Gershom. And so maybe he repeated an Egyptian circumcision, not the Abrahamic circumcision with Gershom and thus was violating God's will. So just like he was reluctant at least three times not to go to his calling, so he wasn't obedient in the circumcision of his son, which is so crucial for the Abrahamic covenant. So it's an indictment of Moses's lack of obedience to God's will and commands. And remember, I think Moses is the one writing this, and uh, and we see that God is not going to let the impurity the impurity become a part of the deliverance of his people. So he was going to take Gershom out. And this, just like in a few minutes, I'm going to talk about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, brings divine justice into question. But I think we have to respond like Job, that God gives and God can take away. Uh, we can't take a life because we can't give life. We can't, we ought not take a life because we can't restore life. Uh, but God, God doesn't function by those mandates uh if god wants to take someone home to himself gershom in this case then he's at liberty to do that i think um, god's a life giver and god's a life restorer and the life preserver and so i don't think the the same basic categories of us murdering a neighbor really apply to god there and if it's for the sake of the purity of the deliverance of his people then i think god is justified in doing it but moses draws us to the faithfulness of his wife and remember, she was raised by a Midianite priest. So surely she had some understanding of circumcision. Maybe she had heard the language of it. Maybe she had heard the ritual as, her, as Jethro had done it. Her father had done it. And she, to the best of her knowledge, uh, recites what she can remember and tries to be faithful and circumcises Gersom there in the moment. And uh, God said that's sufficient, <laughs> even if it wasn't as proper as it should have been. And what was established with Abraham, God says, you did it in faithfulness. Uh, you did it, you did it out of loyalty and worship to me. And that is sufficient. And God shows grace in relenting from that and accepting her. And it wasn't her job. Remember, it's Moses. Moses wasn't supposed to have done this, but she does it, takes, takes the initiative and 
and makes it happen and, and God said that's sufficient and accepts it. So it really it shows the incredible grace of God. And presumably somehow she knew to do it. Um I I I assume that God maybe revealed to her beforehand that this was gonna happen. So maybe she was had some there was some time lag, some delay before God actually acted. So I, I assume God revealed this to her in some way. So maybe there was some kind of time lag before God actually went after Gerson. Maybe it wasn't like, in the instance, oh, I happen to have this knife, circumcise him. That maybe God was working on her heart to, to think over circumcision, to fret about the fact that he hadn't been circumcised so that she was ready when it actually happened. I don't know. But either way, we see God's great grace and relenting, and we see the faithfulness of Moses' wife where he wasn't faithful in doing what God led her to do that he had commanded the husband and father to do. So there's a number of ways we can connect Moses' wife obedience and faithfulness to the gospel. One would be to see in her the obedience of Christ and that the wrath of God due to our sinfulness and rebellion against the Godhead is averted because of the atonement of Jesus and his obedience to live the sinless life and, and pay the ultimate sacrifice. We could also highlight God's faithfulness to the covenant. We can see that the faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant of the proper circumcision caused God to relent in seeking to remove the unfaithfulness and disobedience from the community of faith. And so in that, we can elevate the obedience to Christ and we can elevate the empowerment of the believer, the regenerate believer, to live faithful to what God would have for us as we're convicted by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit. An interesting note, biblically, is that this is the first time that the term son is used collectively for Israel. So Moses, in writing the Pentateuch, uh, opts here, or maybe this is just actually where it happened, but either way it's highlighted here, uh, where God says, my son, as in my people, the Israelite people. So that might be worth noting to your groups, is that we see the faith, we see the, we see the choice of the Israelite people as the elect people called son, because what? Because out of them comes the son, that is capital S son, Jesus Christ, who is to redeem the entire world and reconcile all of us to the Godhead and restore creation or facilitate the new creation so that may be an interesting avenue to perk the interest of your groups the last thing i really want to get into on this podcast is the hardening of pharaoh's heart this is a difficult text for a lot of people and and in my experience anecdotally it's just sort of it's just been ignored that people say we obviously have free will how that doesn't make any sense to me. I'm just not going to think about it very often. And I think we have a responsibility as teachers to provide some options for how that might be interpreted. So first thing we have to do is put it in context. And in that, we need to put election in context. Election, I personally believe, is not used very precisely in some of our modern theological conversations. There are passages in the New Testament that speak of God's elect, certainly in Revelation, that speak of God's elect. But the majority of the biblical witness to the idea of election is that Israel is the elect people of God, chosen and elected in order to bring about Messiah. 
That's really what they're elected for. But we, and I don't know if it's a product of the Reformation, I don't know if it's a product of just evangelistic style teaching and preaching, I don't know what it is, but oftentimes we, when we see election, we take it to mean only individual souls. I think it's a mistake to to think exclusively of election in terms of individual souls or in terms of personal salvation. The bulk of the witness is that it's generally a corporate election that is israel again for the sake of birthing messiah so we have to start talking about election that way um so with that said i do not think the hardening of pharaoh's heart has to do with anything regarding personal salvation per se in the way we think of it now as a quote personal relationship with jesus christ i think we need to think about this as God functioning in an incredibly dramatic way to preserve his people, his elect people, in faithfulness to the covenant promises he made in order to bring about ultimately Messiah, which is to restore the entire world, those believers, to himself. There is a concept of heart in Egypt as the basis or fountain from which one's moral worth flows, moral choices, values, etc. So there is a concept in Egyptian religion of the heart being judged at the end of one's life, whether pure or evil, that the gods choose that, whether good or evil. And so the way Moses is elevating the hardening of the heart here certainly has some ties to that in that what this is about is not really the personal salvation of Pharaoh, not really about election in terms of personal salvation for uh, the way we think about it today, post-Reformation and modern evangelicalism. But what it's really about is that God has maximum authority and control over Pharaoh, the epitome of world power the epitome of paganism in in so many ways and that his heart is at the whims so to speak of god Um, so I, i wouldn't think about it in terms of personal sin we have to start understanding the exodus in terms of a cosmic divine battle where pharaoh himself was often deified in in egyptian religious understandings And then I'm going to push this even harder when we actually talk about the plagues, because you'll see each plague aimed directly at an Egyptian god. So you, so we have to understand what God's doing here is demonstrating his sovereign purpose and will can't be thwarted by even the most powerful individual on earth. And that that individual's heart, quote, choices, etc., whatever, is nothing compared to the divine purposes, majesty, justice, etc. of God. And in that, God's demonstrating to the Israelite people from whom Messiah will come, his divine choices, purposes, power, authority, etc. So overall, two things. Let's start understanding, particularly in terms of the Exodus, election as a corporate reality, And let's see in the battle between God and Pharaoh, 
not a standard pattern of the way God relates to every individual soul that is ever created, but let's see in it a demonstration of God's power and authority as example to his people that they are right, rational, and moral in putting their trust and faith and obedience in God. That's what it's about there. Not a standard operating procedure for the way God relates to every human soul. And now we may be able to, if you do tend that way in your understanding of salvation, then do it on the basis of other texts. Don't do it on the basis of of Pharaoh here. And so I think the first rebuttal to that is going to be, well, what about Romans 9? Paul seems to use Pharaoh in the context of election when he's answering the rhetorical response from an individual. Why does God still find fault with us if no one can resist his will? And I would say that's why I also talked about corporate election, because what Paul is elevating there is the preservation of the messianic line. The reason God hated Esau and loved Jacob is not because he didn't bless Esau. He did. It's clear that God blessed Esau. We read about it biblically. But what God did do was bring Messiah through Jacob's line. He brought deliverance for the entire world and universe and all of his creatures out of Jacob's line, not Esau's. And in that way, Esau was hated. But Esau certainly was blessed. I think Esau was redeemed uh, in the sense that he had faith in in God's God's ways. Uh, So, yes, Paul does refer to Pharaoh, but he refers to it in the context of the letter to the Romans, which is largely about God's acceptance of the Gentiles into this community of faith. So what God is saying to the Jews at Rome who have recently converted to the way, that is, they recently accepted the authority of Christ as Messiah and resurrected for the salvation of their sins, he's saying God is at liberty to redeem Gentiles too. The promise to you was that he would preserve the messianic line through Jacob. And he had compassion on whom he had compassion, showed mercy to whom he wanted to show mercy. That is to say, he chose Jacob over Esau. He demonstrated his power over Pharaoh. All of this to bring about his chosen line, that is, the incarnate Jesus. And again, that is to say, now God is at liberty and God has the authority, right, sovereignty, goodness, purpose, etc. to redeem Gentiles if he wants to. Because that's immediately where we go after Romans 9 concludes. So Romans 9 functions in many ways as a transition piece to go from this idea of me being predestined, foreknown, to be conformed to the image of Christ as an individual. Now let's understand that God is doing that for the Gentiles too. Because that's where he goes next. And then he offers in a defense, a defense that God hasn't broken his promise to the Jews either in all of that, because he'll redeem them as well. So I don't think that rebuttal goes any way toward not understanding the Exodus event in Pharaoh in terms of corporate election of the messianic line and in terms of God demonstrating a sovereignty and power and purposes through Pharaoh for his people. Now I want to say for a robust understanding of God's knowledge, and I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but I do want to share with you my thoughts on how I understand God's knowledge is that I am a believer in middle knowledge. I would argue most people technically are, but some don't separate middle knowledge out as its own thing, whereas I do. So what on earth do I mean by middle knowledge? Very quickly, theologians uh, shortly after the Reformation 
talked about God's knowledge in terms of natural knowledge and free knowledge. Natural knowledge are things that are true just by God's existence alone. That, that's, that's the best definition, I think, of that. You'll, you'll get some other nuanced definitions. But in order to preserve God's aseity, uh, I think it's best to understand it that way. Natural knowledge are those propositions that are true simply as a function of God existing. And that would be things like 2 plus 2 equals 4. Once the Trinity exists, 2 plus 2 equals 4 is true. And is, is independent of anything else. It doesn't matter if there's a world or a universe or whatever. Tautologies would be the same way. Tautologies are things that are true by definition. So, for example, all unmarried men are bachelors. That's just true because that just is the definition. Uh, so all of that kind of stuff is true just because God exists. These are just like the laws of logic, law of non-contradiction, for example. That's true because that's just the way God's brain works. And I use brain loosely there, not to say God actually has a brain. I should probably say mind over brain. So that's just the mind of God are, for example, the laws of logic, the laws of mathematics, etc. Free knowledge are those things that are true by a function of God's will. So notice, natural knowledge, function of God's existence, free knowledge, function of God's will. God chooses to create the earth and establish it as the third planet from our sun. It didn't have to be that way. God could have made the sun a little bit hotter and earth could be where Mars is, right? That was, that was a legitimate option. Uh, God could have not made the family of Brentwood Baptist churches. Uh, we all could be serving in other local fellowships and so forth. All of this is free knowledge because God chooses. He just chooses what to do. Well, there was a Jesuit thinker named Louis de Molina who said, well, God also has middle knowledge. And the reason it's called middle knowledge is because it comes between, logically, it comes between natural knowledge and free knowledge. And these are all the possibilities of what God could do. So God could have created Earth where Mars is and made the sun a little bit hotter. God could have not created me and created someone else instead. God could have done lots and lots of other things. God could have permitted the... British to win the Revolutionary War. All those are things that could be the case, and then God freely chooses what world he's going to create. And most importantly, uh, middle for our purposes here, middle knowledge incorporates all those things that I would do freely given any set of circumstances. So God knows that if, uh, for instance, me, if I were to come my first Sunday at Brentwood Baptist Church and Mike were to just read the book of Galatians as the sermon, then I would move my membership there. And that's precisely what happened. So God can bring about certain realities in his free knowledge and ensure particular results as a function of his middle knowledge, knowing what choices I would freely make. So natural knowledge, true because of God's existence, middle knowledge, all the things God could choose to do, free knowledge, the thing that God actually chooses to do, as a function of his will. Now, the reason I say everybody, or at least many evangelical, reformed, um, post-reformation thinkers, believe in middle knowledge, is that they just lump it under natural knowledge. They say it's just a part of natural knowledge. I disagree, obviously, because there's a, a variety of options. I mean, I don't think those are true by a function of God's existence. And so that's why I think middle knowledge is significant. It's what's called counterfactuals. There's things that are counter to fact that could have been the case. 
Now, all of that is to say this, and I apologize for not warning you to fast forward through that part, but all of that is to say this. God in his omniscience, on my understanding of mental knowledge, knows exactly how Pharaoh would act given any circumstance. God knows if there is a way to redeem Pharaoh. And I would argue there probably wasn't a way to redeem Pharaoh. And so God is at liberty, I think, to use Pharaoh in the salvation of many, in the revealing of himself to many. And God knows that Pharaoh would not ultimately convert. So what I'm saying is this. When we see God hardening Pharaoh's heart, we, I think, immediately, because of our understanding of personal salvation and personal election, we see God as hindering Pharaoh from coming to faith. That's, I think, how we read it. And I think that's a mistake. I don't think that's what Moses is saying as he's writing Exodus. Um, God is not simply blocking Pharaoh from becoming a believer. What God is doing is demonstrating his sovereignty and control over all world powers and all of reality such that no amount of success, power, whatever in this world could ever thwart the divine plans of God. That is, to leap all the way back to the Hebrew midwives, fear God and only God. And we justify this on the basis that Pharaoh was unrepentant unrepentant in all that he did and so we see that pharaoh would give in certain places that pharaoh would let them go here or pharaoh wanted to relent but god hardened his heart so that he wouldn't that doesn't mean that pharaoh was becoming a believer it doesn't mean that he was willing to submit his values worth purposes etc all to the divine commands of yahweh far from it he was just trying to stop the pain was all he was doing. That was it. He was looking for relief. He wasn't looking for salvation in any way. And we have to help our people see that. When God hardens Pharaoh's heart, God knows full well that Pharaoh's not coming to salvation, that Pharaoh doesn't have genuine and true repentance, that Pharaoh's just trying to stop the figurative bleeding. He just wants the plagues to end. And so I think we can argue that God was justified in doing what he was doing, that he was not hindering Pharaoh from personal salvation, that God knew Pharaoh wasn't going to accept personal salvation in any case. So God was at liberty then to redeem those that he could through the use of Pharaoh in whatever way God deemed fit. That's generally the way that I I come about it. I do not think it is the case that God is hardening individuals today and hindering them from personal salvation. I think people are doing that for themselves. And I think that's the connection we want to try to make in terms of um, in terms of understanding how this story relates to modern concepts of salvation. And so we hop back to Romans again and we see God allowing a partial hardening to come upon the Jews. And so but what's it for, though, It's for the sake of restoring them and redeeming them because they're jealous of Gentiles now being in the promise and understand the goodness and grace God had offered them. So it's always in the service of salvation. It's always in the service of reconciling. I do not believe biblical revelation demonstrates that God is in the business of stopping people from being saved who could have been saved uh, for the sake of anything. I I just don't see where that's a legitimate biblical claim. Nevertheless, I think it is a biblical claim and right and good 
that God is at liberty to use individuals how he deems fit insofar as these individuals would not come to understand salvation. So he's not blocking them from salvation. He under he knows that they aren't going to genuinely repent, and he's able to suffer with these vessels of wrath, to borrow the Romans 9 language, in order to demonstrate mercy to all else. In order to demonstrate mercy to the people of Israel there, God utilizes Pharaoh, and Egypt really, to demonstrate his superiority over all of the other pagan deities. And frankly, anyone in Egypt had the opportunity to repent if they wanted. They could have rejected their creator gods, their Nile gods, their all sorts of gods. I mean, I mean, just just take this for instance that, well, not to go too far because we are going to talk about this in terms of the plagues, but the Egyptian creation understanding is that reality was created fresh and new every single day. And then here's the Israelites teaching and Moses teaching in the beginning, God created once for all. And that was that. Um, not every single day a creation ex nihilo out of nothing and then we get this continuity just because God cre- recreates it the same way it was in the midst of all this polytheism and everything else. The Egyptians had plenty of opportunity to reject their gods and follow the Israelites. And we see Rahab doing just that. And what does she refer when Rahab hides the spies and receives deliverance in the conquest narratives? She refers back to we know what God did in Egypt. And so I think God was at liberty and justified to use Pharaoh's already darkened heart and already lack of repentance to demonstrate his sovereignty and purposes to bring others to salvation. And that even when we see Pharaoh, quote, relenting and choosing the right thing, he's not doing it from a genuine seat of repentance and submission to God. He's doing it merely to, quote, stop the hurt. And um, and I think God's at liberty to, to do with that whatever he deems fit to do with that. Now, how do we connect all that to gospel? Because those are some deep waters. Uh, and it is it is a difficult dis- discussion to have. And if you're not careful, we get into these free will, sovereignty debates, and we can easily lose an hour. I'm fairly sure that probably just took me 20 minutes as I wasn't even paying attention. Uh, it felt like five to me, and it was probably 20 some odd minutes. So we do have to be careful with it. So what I encourage you to do, here's what I would do if I was in the group. Uh, the, the key to what we want to talk about today, guys, is not personal election in terms of personal salvation. Okay? And the only reason I mention that is because of this language of God promising to harden Pharaoh's heart. And sometimes when we look at that, we think in terms of personal salvation that God was stopping Pharaoh in some way from becoming saved. That's not at all what was happening. Instead, Pharaoh was darkened and blinded and a God-hater, the one true God-hater anyway, and any time it says that he relents or any time he says that he wants to let the people go is merely because he wants to stop the pain, not because he has repented. It's not about personal salvation. Here's what it's about. It's about God demonstrating his sovereignty, his control, and that his purposes won't be thwarted such that the people of Israel, as he takes them out of Egypt and through the wilderness into the promised land, can understand, trust, and be loyal in obedience to God. That the most powerful individual on the earth... Pharaoh is nothing compared to Yahweh. That Pharaoh's heart is in the hands of Yahweh in whatever in whatever way God deems fit. And that's really the point of all of that. And so, so, so don't extrapolate that to the normal way that God comes about bringing salvation to people in modern times. And then I would move on from it. And I would say, if you want to talk more about that, then we can talk about it after class. We can talk about it sometime this week. 
Or you can call Paul because he loves to talk about these things. Go bug him with it. I got other stuff to do. And I am more than happy to address those conversations with anybody in your group. So please be liberal. Be very, very liberal in the way you offer my time out to your group members. Because I, I really would cherish the opportunity to talk with them about such things. If you do, in fact, happen to get onto this discussion and can't avoid it in the way I just demonstrated then I recommend that you say what I just said, but then try to move quickly to gospel. So how do we tie this then to gospel? Is that we demonstrate that even within the hardness of the hearts of the Jews, and we can point to the Pentecost sermon for this in Acts uh, 2, as well as other places in Acts, where Peter just accuses them, you killed God. You know, you killed Jesus, you killed Messiah. That God had preserved the line for so long in the corporate election and brought about Messiah and then you murdered him. That was you that did that. Nevertheless, repentance is available to you. And that's the message we want to say is that the same God who sovereignly was over Pharaoh is the same God who was sovereignly bringing about the murder of the second person of the Trinity. And in that offered salvation to everyone as he raised the son from the dead to demonstrate the truth of Jesus' radical claims about his own divinity, his own power, authority to forgive sins, etc., in the coming of the kingdom. And so we want to point to God's victory in the cosmic battle versus Pharaoh, and then as a subset and a foreshadow, God's cosmic victory over Satan in the conquering of death, such that we are not slaves to death anymore. Just like Paul says, where, O death, is your sting? We don't fear death. Satan has nothing to hold over our heads anymore. We are liberated from the bondage of our sin and of Satan. We reject the shame. We reject the guilt. We trust in who God says we are. And we are children of God. And we are redeemed. And we're going to be about the business of expanding and glorifying the kingdom of God. So, we point to God's sovereignty and God's glory. Pretty much always the answer, no matter where you start. 